From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour. Thanks for joining me. It's going to be a ripper of a show again today. With agenda politics now having to adjust in order to get the will of the people, to keep the globalists in office, to usher in their cunning plans, their grip on the narrative is slipping as more and more see through the narrative. We'll take a deep dive into the digital ID and digital currencies being created at a time when major banks are choosing to go cashless. As economies are tanking around the world, European nations are scaling back aid to Ukraine. Germany looks to print more money as Russia inks a deal with Mali to assist with the African country's refining of gold. But first today, the Red Cross says it has successfully facilitated the release and transfer of 11 Israeli captives held in Gaza. Three Palestinian women and 30 children were freed from Israeli prisons in the fourth exchange since the Gaza truce came into effect last week. Israel has added 50 women to its list of Palestinian prisoners eligible for release in the event. Additional Israeli hostages are freed. The office of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in a post on X, the 50 names are additional to a previous list of 300 Palestinian prisoners eligible for release published by Israel's Justice Ministry before the commencement of the four-day truce. Israel has since released 150 prisoners from that first list, which is apparently published to allow for last-minute legal challenges. The Palestinian Commission for Detainees and Ex-Prisoners Affairs published the names of the fourth batch of detainees released Tuesday morning, including the three women and 30 children. The Commission said the release of Palestinians is within the terms of the humanitarian truce deal, which was mediated by Qatar. Earlier, 11 Israeli captives, many of them arrived in Israel after being released by Hamas. In this first report, here is diplomacy contributor James Bays explaining the latest information about the extension of the ceasefire. As we were hearing earlier on, it's come at the same time as I think they've nailed down the exact um, numbers and names of those that are going to be exchanged in the coming hours. That was taking some time, but it seems that both of these things have been done at the same time. The Israeli um, Prime Minister's office informing the Israeli families uh, some 13 um, captives to be released in the coming hours. We think 33 Palestinians. So that's the completion of the four-day agreement and now we have two more days. So we potentially, I think, we don't know the numbers, but we potentially have about 10 um, captives, Israeli captives, each day released, and probably potentially about 30 Palestinians on either side. So an important development, and this of course means that the bombardment in Gaza does not start again. Because if we hadn't had this deal, at 7 a.m. Gaza time, just a few hours from now, then the bombardment would have started. Um, So it is respite, further respite for uh, those on the ground in Gaza. It also means that more aid can come in. And although the aid, the UN and the uh, Red Crescent and others say is not enough, every day means they can start to replenish the stocks in Gaza, particularly the fuel, to try and get desalination plants going, to try and get hospitals going, to try and get some of the most basic facilities that are needed to keep Palestinians alive, uh, not, not just with hospitals, but with the real threat of disease, the real threat of starvation that has been warned by, by aid agencies and the UN. So this is good news for everyone, it seems, at this stage. Meanwhile, peace and ending fighting is a good thing. 
and something that those involved want more of. In this interview on Al Jazeera television, senior Hamas leader Ghazi Hamad said that Hamas wants to stop the war and the aggression against the Palestinian people. He's encouraged by support from Palestinian supporters and enemies. Even at war, the innocent victims are the ones paying the ultimate price. Here is Hamad speaking earlier on Al Jazeera. If Hamas give more hostages and more captives, there will be more more days of the ceasefire. And now I think in along the four days, we have communication with the Qatari, with the Egyptians. And I think most countries, many countries are interested now to extend the ceasefire, uh, different countries. And we have seen uh, different statements that they support the uh, achievement of the ceasefire. And I think uh, now, maybe before uh, an hour, I think uh, we have agreed to uh, to give uh, more hostages and to extend the the ceasefire for two days. I think this is uh, good news for our people and uh, for especially for people in Gaza. They will breathe more, they will rest more in, in Gaza Strip. They can yani, return uh, gradually to the normal life. I hope we can extend until we reach the end of this war and aggression in our people in Gaza. Yeah, I think we are working in this issue with different parts. We want to stop the war and the aggression on our people. But as I said, now we are in the temporary ceasefire. We are trying to extend it from time to time until we reach to the end of the war. I think there is big support from the uh, Qatari uh, government and the Egyptian government and even Western government. They want the ceasefire to stop and uh, to allow for uh, political solution and to end the aggression and to end this catastrophe in people in Gaza. I, I hope that we, there will be a, a, a will from the international community yeah. to continue to exert more pressure on Israel to, uh, to end the occupation right. and to end the, this catastrophe on the Palestinians. Meanwhile, Qatar, the United States and Egypt have engaged in intense negotiations to establish and prolong the truce in Gaza, which mediators have said was designed to be broadened and expanded. Meanwhile, an update from the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's office comes as Israel has yet to officially confirm that it has agreed to the two-day truce announced by Hamas and Qatar. Meanwhile, speaking for the United States, John Kirby explains the details of how the negotiations are going, which involves Hamas releasing more hostages, the goal to continue the ceasefire longer so as to get all of the hostages out. This includes the US playing good cop to Israel's bad cop in terms of letting humanitarian aid get into Gaza. Now, in order to extend the pause, Hamas has committed to releasing another 20 women and children over the next two days. We would, of course, hope to see the pause extended further, and that will depend upon Hamas continuing to release hostages. The president has been deeply engaged on this process throughout the Thanksgiving weekend. He spoke with the Emir of Qatar at a very critical moment to help resolve an impasse on the second day of the pause. And then yesterday, he spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu with a focus on working towards an extension of the pause, the extension that, Frank, quite frankly, we're seeing today. Uh, his team then worked on that overnight and through the morning. He was briefed this morning by the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, on the ongoing talks to extend the pause. Uh, he and his entire national security team will obviously stay engaged on this over the coming days as we work to implement this extension of the original agreement, as well as efforts to extend the pause even from there. Uh, just a quick update on the figures. As of uh, the, the morning of November 26, 200 trucks were dispatched to the Rafah crossing and 137 trucks of supplies were offloaded by the United Nations reception point in Gaza, making it the biggest humanitarian convoy received since the 7th of October. 
And this brings the total number of trucks uh, of aid and assistance, including fuel, to over 2,000 since the 21st of October. In other news, India is likely to sign an agreement with the US to expedite the return of precious stolen artifacts amid New Delhi's continued attempts to bring back national heritage from foreign shores. The Indian Express reported on Monday, citing officials, the US will volunteer to return the items under an envisioned cultural property agreement between New Delhi and Washington. We are eager to conclude a bilateral CPA, which would help to prevent illegal trafficking of cultural property from India to the US. A US Embassy spokesperson in New Delhi was quoted as saying by the outlet, the US Embassy has been working closely with India's Ministry of Culture and the Indian Embassy in Washington to protect and return stolen items, the spokesperson added. Once the pact is signed, the US will intercept smuggled goods at the border and return them expeditiously. India's Cultural Secretary Govind Mohan was quoted as saying it is expected to come into effect in a few months. India's Prime Minister, meanwhile, Narendra Modi, uh, has made the return of stolen art of antiques one of his government's core missions. According to Indian data, the 400 smuggled or stolen antiques, including religious idols, have been returned to India from the US since the Modi-led Bharatiya Janto Party, or the BJP, was voted into power in 2014. In recent years, India has been tapping on Washington's door to return antiques stolen over the years that made their way to US shores. Modi and US President Joe Biden committed to strengthen their efforts to combat theft, illicit trade and trafficking of cultural objects during the former's visit to the US earlier this year. And in September, the Times of India newspaper reported that a US court had cleared over 1,400 idols for return to India. However, the transfer was delayed due to procedures that included sending experts to authenticate the idols and budgetary constraints. The US has so far returned 578 stolen idols displayed in its art galleries to India, the report noted. And Ukrainian troops have to use 50-year-old Soviet civilian off-road cars branded Lada to get to the front lines, German tabloid Bild reported on Monday, citing several soldiers and officers. The sources told the outlet of huge problems ranging from inadequate command to a severe lack of essential military equipment and supplies. The soldiers cited an acute shortage of armoured troop carriers and military off-road vehicles, necessitating a dependence on self-financed civilian vehicles for military transport. In a car repair shop, we pay for everything out of our own pocket, one soldier has said. Kiev's forces also suffer from the lack of reconnaissance and strike drones, which they also have to purchase themselves or get from various aid organisations and private donors. Some units have to rely on custom-built unmanned aerial vehicles outfitted with parts made on 3D printers, one of Bill's sources reported. We also pay rent for the houses we sleep in and for food. That makes you angry, one of the soldiers said, adding that while Russia invests everything in its forces, the Ukrainian counterparts have to rely largely on themselves. The effectiveness of the Russian drones and their constant presence on the battlefield also severely limits the capabilities of Ukrainian troops, several sources added. Many who spoke to BUILD were also highly critical of the nation's high command, which they said had reduced all the NATO training to nothing. Since the senior officers are the same as before, hardly anything has changed in terms of warfare compared to the Soviet era. The soldier trained by NATO nations also told the news agency. Many in the ranks of the military are growing angry with Ukraine's political and military leadership 
Field sources claimed the general staff should have never passed on the counteroffensive orders given to Zelensky from abroad. Meanwhile, Kiev has signed contracts with two private recruitment companies in order to appeal to draft dodgers. The Guardian reported Monday, citing Alexei Danilov, the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defence Council. President Vladimir Zelensky said on Friday that a comprehensive overhaul of mobilisation rules will be announced this week. Danilov's disclosure appears to be only a part of the broader strategy to address the manpower shortages due to heavy losses in this year's battles. Some people are scared, scared to die, scared to shoot, but it doesn't mean they can't be involved in other activities. Danilov told the UK outlet. According to him, the military will work with two private recruiters to identify people with specific skills and persuade skilled Ukrainians to enlist and help the military. The mobilisation will become more flexible. Those specialties that are required will be announced and people will be volunteering for a concrete position, he said. For example, they need welders or mechanics and so on. An anonymous source at the Ukrainian Defence Ministry told The Guardian that contacts have already been signed with several private companies, but would not disclose more details. According to the UK outlet, conscripted Ukrainians get a few weeks of training before they are sent out to the front. Amid the fighting, many Ukrainian outlets have described as a meat grinder. At least 20,000 men have fled the country and another 21,000 tried to do so, but were caught. The BBC reported earlier this month, Kiev has been hard-pressed to make up the manpower lost in the four-month counteroffensive on the Zaporizhia front, with Russia estimated at over 90,000. Several brigades mauled in attempted attacks have since been redeployed to defend against Russian advances. In early August, Zelensky fired all the heads of regional conscription officers, citing widespread corruption. Ukrainian security services alleged a criminal ring that conspired to sell fake medical exemptions for thousands of dollars apiece. Meanwhile, in approximately 32,000 babies in the US were born this year that may have otherwise been aborted, according to a study from the Institute of Labor Economics. The study was conducted after the fall of Roe versus Wade last summer, a 1973 Supreme Court decision that had invented the right to abortion. The purpose of the study was to figure out how post-Roe abortion bans are affecting fertility, with researchers using provisional state resident birth counts to estimate how births are changing in states that have outlawed abortion relative to pro-abortion states. Our primary analysis indicates that in the first six months of 2023, births rose by an average of 2.3% in states enforcing total abortion bans compared to a control group of states where abortion rights remain protected, amounting to approximately 32,000 additional annual births resulting from abortion bans, according to the study. The study's authors ultimately called the post-Roe shift the most profound transformation of the landscape of US abortion access in 50 years. As of the 1st of November 2023, 14 states are enforcing bans on abortion in nearly all circumstances, and 23% of US women of reproductive age have experienced an increase in driving distance to the nearest abortion facility, from an average of 43 miles one way before Dobbs to 330 miles at present, the study has found. The study also found the effects on abortion stats were especially large for women 20 to 24 and Hispanic women, with birth rates estimated to have increased 3.3% and 4.7% respectively. The authors of the study appear to view 32,000 extra births as negative news, suggesting evidence points to diminished abortion access that poses a risk to the health and financial stability of vulnerable populations. In 2020, approximately one in five pregnancies ended in abortion. The study reads, at the time they seek abortions, 75% of patients are low income, 
59% of previously given birth, and 55% report a recent disruptive life event such as falling behind in their rent or losing a job. And after the break, amidst war in Mali, it inks a new gold deal with Russia. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Rick Munn on TNT Radio. There was a, a statement that I saw last week that I thought was quite interesting from one of these uh, web spokespeople, the World Economic Forum spokesperson. And one thing that she said that I thought was quite interesting was she said, you know, um, there has been a little bit of a tail off with people buying into the vaccine narrative and she blamed that on people like us spreading so-called missing disinformation. She said that climate change was a little bit too much of an abstract concept for people to really grab and get their heads around. So that's not really taking off the way they want to either. And then she said something very interesting. She said, you know what? When the water crisis comes, people will understand that because it's simple and everybody needs water. And if you don't have water for a few days at a time, you'll know all about it. So maybe, you know, we're hypothesizing a little bit about what's what it's going to take to grab people and bring them back on board again with a World Economic Forum type narrative. Could this be what it is? Locked in Loaded with Rick Munn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me, and I was trying to figure it out, and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old. And it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. You're with Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to your Global News Hour. Mali's military government has officially entered into an agreement with Russia, unveiling plans for a state-of-the-art gold refinery project to be established in the Malian capital of Bamako. The deal, which spans four years, includes the construction of a refinery capable of processing a substantial 200 tonnes of gold annually. Gold stands as Mali's primary export product by value and plays a pivotal role in contributing to the country's economic growth, as emphasised by the mining ministry. The agreement, while not specifying exact construction timelines, signals a strategic initiative to fortify Mali's control over its gold production. Finance Minister Alusini Sanu expressed optimism about the project's implications, stating that it would empower Mali to oversee and regulate all aspects of gold production within the country. 
This, he believes, will enable the government to meticulously apply taxes and duties, ensuring a streamlined and transparent revenue collection process. The move comes at a crucial juncture for Mali as the nation has sought to enhance its global partnerships, particularly in the aftermath of the military coup in 2021 and the subsequent withdrawal of French forces in 2022. Mali's government, though, is asking residents who fled the northern city of Kidal to return home. It is after government forces regained control of the city last week. Many are from the semi-nomadic Tuareg ethnic group and are too afraid to come back. The town was part of the Azawad movement's heartland, an alliance of Tuareg armed groups that hopes to gain autonomy. By the border with Algeria, in Tinzawatin, displaced Tuaregs from Kidal living in makeshift tents. Still shaken, after Mali's military targeted them with a drone strike, several were killed, scores injured. After seizing the city of Kidal from Tuareg rebels, Malian soldiers with the help of Wagner fighters are on the offensive in the country's northern region. We are scared of Wagner. In Mali, there weren't any problems before they arrived. We trusted the military. Wagner is beheading people. We are really afraid. We've left everything behind, food and our animals. We are too afraid to return home. But Mali's government is calling on those displaced to return home to Kidal. The military are going house to house searching for Tuareg rebels. During our sweep of the city, we found and seized a lot of weapons and vehicles, which we now have to hand in this camp. Images circulating on social media show ethnic Bambara residents of Kidal looting homes of their Arab and Tuareg neighbors who had fled. Most Tuareg and Arabs are too afraid to return home, fearing communal violence. The Tuareg people are isolated and displaced. Their hopes for an independent homeland they call the Azawad seem distant. For now, it is for them a matter of survival. Meanwhile, there isn't much left in the Czech Republic's stockpiles that can be sent to Kiev. Defence Minister Jana Kurnachova has said in a TV interview at the weekend, Prague intends to contract with private companies to continue weapons and ammunition deliveries, she added. Earlier this month, the Czech Defence Ministry published a report listing all the equipment donated to Ukraine, whose value was estimated at about 54 million US dollars after depreciation. There are not many items of military material that we could send to Ukraine. Kurnachova told Vaklev Morovich, host of the Otaki show on Czech state television. On the other hand, we will try to compensate for the impossibility of sending material from our stocks because we do not want to jeopardise our defence capability with export licences that we grant to private companies. According to Kurnachova, the Czech military industry has the capacity to supply Ukraine with ammunition and weapons if contracted for them. She brought up the fact that Prague has sent Kiev close to 50 infantry fighting vehicles and tanks, 2,500 pistols, 7,000 rifles, 500 light machine guns and 500 sniper rifles, all paid for by Denmark. Czech instructors have also trained up to 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers as part of the EU military assistance mission and deployed mobile training teams in Poland. She said... Prague's determination comes after the new government in neighbouring Slovakia blocked its predecessor's plans to donate 43 million US dollars worth of weapons and ammunition to Kiev. Over the past 18 months, the US and its European allies in NATO have raided their closets to replenish Ukraine's losses in the conflict against Russia. By October, however, they began to admit that the stockpiles were running out. First Britain, then France halted donations to Ukraine, admitting their cupboards were bare. Of the 
1,155,000,000 millimetre shells the EU promised Kiev it could just deliver 300,000. And the German DAF forces, left underfunded and under-equipped in both personnel and ammunition stocks, would only last a matter of two days in the event of a war, MP Dr Johann Waterfall has warned, explaining that arms that would have gone to resupply the Bundeswehr are instead going to Ukraine. Waterfall called for ramping up the speed at which Germany's armed forces are re-equipped, noting the difficult shortage that they are facing, Zeit reported, citing the politician's interview with German press agency DPA at the weekend. Crucial troop units can only last a maximum of two days in a battle. And that is a catastrophic finding overall, Waterfall said, adding that anyone who expects the army to be able to defend itself in war should have ensured that it did not find itself in such a situation. Unfortunately, the opposite is the case, he said. Waterfall's comments came as Berlin's Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock promised a, earlier this month to not only continue sending military aid to Kiev, but to expand and increase it. Germany is Ukraine's second biggest war sponsor, after the US having pledged more than 17 billion euro in military aid. The aid has included Leopard tanks, Patriot anti-aircraft missile system, artillery, and almost 22,000 rounds of 155mm ammunition, among other supplies. The EU Foreign Affairs Chief, Joseph Burrell, is speaking to the press earlier this month, admitted the initial stocks of ammunition, what the armies already had in their stockpiles, is already finished, with more than 300,000 shells already provided to Ukraine. Now, from the stockpiles of the armies, it is difficult to get more. Russia has repeatedly warned that Western arms supply sent to Kiev will barely impact the situation on the front lines, with Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu saying this month that despite the supply of new kinds of NATO weapons, the Kiev regime is losing. And coming up after the headlines, it's about the economy. With the Biden administration feeling the heat, this is Compass on TNT Radio. I got news. News. I got news for you. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. The ceasefire in Gaza, which was due to expire on Monday evening, has been extended by a further 48 hours. The Russian region of Crimea has been hit by the worst storm in its history, with tsunami-like waves and 150 kilometre per hour winds thrashing the peninsula. And another NATO country has run out of weapons for Ukraine. The Czech Republic, the latest nation to announce its stockpiles, are running empty. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 24 7, 365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk this is TNT Radio. Welcome back to your global news. The use of cash has more than halved in the past three years, with its decline accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. New analysis released by the Australian Reserve Bank has revealed the share of cash transactions paid by consumers plummeted from 27% in 2019 to just 13% in 2022, according to the findings of a new survey published by the Central Bank on Monday. Cash use has declined markedly in recent years. In 2007, more than two in every three payments were made using cash. 
Across all demographic groups, the use of cash has fallen, although the declines are most pronounced among those who traditionally use cash more frequently, including the elderly, those in regional areas and people on low incomes. The declining cash use was brought forward by the pandemic. The RBA's analysis found due to hygiene concern with handling cash. If cash use had followed its pre-pandemic trend, we would have expected the share of the number of in-person transactions made with cash to be six percentage points higher than in 2022, the report states. And White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on Monday claimed Americans overwhelmingly disprove of Joe Biden's economy because of Trump. Recent polls reveal Americans say that they were better off financially under Trump. Latest polling from Bloomberg carried out amongst swing states asked who the economy was better off under. 53% said Trump, against 33% for Biden. As for one's personal financial situation, 52% said Trump and 30% said Biden was better. Fox News reporter Peter Ducey repeatedly grilled Corinne Jean-Pierre on Biden's failed economic agenda that has led to persistent inflation. He said on lowering prices, you said earlier that the actions the president has taken have worked. So is it your sense that when people were home for Thanksgiving, catching up with their family members, that they were saying to each other, can you believe how much more affordable things have gotten? He asked KJP. So honestly, I wouldn't. I, I hear your question, but I want to make sure that this is very clear. We take that very seriously. We take what families, families' decisions that they make on their kitchen table very seriously. It's not a joke to us. It's important. Ducey then pushed back and asked, but why do you think is that when you say the economy is proving and President Biden says the economy is improving, that a majority of Americans outside of this building are not buying it? Her reply was Trump. So here's the thing. When we walked into this administration, the economy was on a tailspin. This is a fact because the Trump administration, because of how they dealt with COVID and the pandemic, the president came in passed the American Rescue Plan, which was able to get the economy back on its feet, which is able to open up small businesses. We actually had to fix the problem that we saw the last administration left us. Ducey pushed back again, but almost three years in office, inflation is up over 17% since President Biden came here. And you're saying that it's still Trump's fault? But almost three years in office, inflation is up over 17% since President Biden came here. Christian, inflation, fault. inflation is moderating because of the actions that this person, this president has taken. Doesn't because because prices because are going up slower, they're still high. It's going down. The prices are going down. If you look at where, example, for a perfect example, I mean, I just talked about last week how turkey prices, the cost for turkeys is going down, the cost for eggs is going down because of the actions that were taken. Which I just talked about supply chain and how that affects the economy. And that's because of the president's action that he's taken. And if you think about gas prices, it's down by $1.70 since its peak, since its peak because of the actions that this president has taken. So we understand that people are still not feeling it. We get that. But doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to talk about it. Doesn't mean that the president at two o'clock is not going to talk about how he's lowering cost, right? And let's not forget what Republicans are doing on the other side of, of uh, again, Pennsylvania Avenue. They're trying to increase health care costs. They want to get rid of Medicare. They want to get rid of uh, Social Security. That is something that we saw them try to do at the State of the Union, right? We they do that over and over and over again. They want to make sure the millionaires and billionaires are, are actually uh, getting the benefits, right? And so that's not, that's not our way. 
are ways to build the middle class from the bottom up, middle out, and the president believes in that. He talks about it. You're going to hear him talk about it in about an hour, and that's going to be our focus. So if things are going well, you take the credit. If things are going poorly, you blame your predecessor. Not only are Americans feeling strapped financially because of Joe Biden's failed economic agenda, Moody's earlier this month cut the outlook on the U.S. government to negative. Moody's Investors Service lowered its ratings outlook on the U.S. government, citing high interest rates, government spending and deficits. Earlier this year, Moody's cut its outlook for the entire U.S. banking sector to negative and put six banks on downgrade watch. The credit rating service moved to downgrade the entire banking sector from stable to negative will impact borrowing costs. And Germany is once again expanding spending despite enshrining a debt break into its constitution and ordering a freeze on its government department's spending habits, only to bypass it again now to pay for Chancellor Schultz's climate alarmist policies. With Bloomberg reporting that German Chancellor Schultz's government approved a supplementary 2023 budget that includes the suspension of rules limiting net new borrowing for a fourth consecutive year. The new budget lifts the figure for net borrowing for this year by 25 billion euro to 70 billion euro. Finance Minister Linda initially insisted on restoring the borrowing mechanism this year after it was suspended to help deal with the fallout from the pandemic and energy crisis. The rules enshrined in Germany's constitution can be temporarily set aside in the case of natural disasters or emergencies beyond the control of the government. Rolf Munizic, the head of the SPD caucus in the lower house of parliament, said Monday that such a move is justified as Germany is facing multiple challenges, not only the fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they're not living in normal times, Munizic told reporters, urging opposition parties to help the government with a constructive policy contribution. What it means, as we learned, is that once you bend the rules for emergencies, there will be emergencies forever or until the time comes for the crash to usher in the globalist plans for a universal basic income, the carrot to sign up to the digital ID and programmable currency. We will chart that trajectory after the break here on TNT Radio. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future, with nutritious food to eat, a chance to learn, to get an education, and do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams by ensuring that they have access to healthcare, education, life skills, and more, so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. 
our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. You're listening to Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back. Bond yields have risen substantially in developed countries, with central banks offloading their vast holdings. Sovereign bond sales could increase further next year as budget deficits balloon across the developed world, Bloomberg reported this week. According to the outlet's analysis, this comes at a bad time as central banks have accelerated the reduction of huge bond holdings amassed through quantitative easing. This double whammy means bond yields, particularly on the longer end of the curve, are set for a difficult 2024, Bloomberg wrote, suggesting the US Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank and the Bank of England should curb their enthusiasm for shrinking their balance sheets. According to the Bank of America, cited in the report, Treasury bond issuance is expected to reach a record $1.34 trillion next year. Meanwhile, the US deficit in 2026 is projected to climb towards $2 trillion. The report indicated that multiple factors affect bond values, but the one constant in an ever-changing world is rising debt issuance. The US Fed has reportedly been trimming its balance sheet by $95 billion a month since June of 2022, reducing it so far to $7.8 trillion, nearly double the pre-pandemic $4 trillion mark. The risk remains that the combination of monetary tightening by the Fed with expanding US Treasury supply will prove deadly, Bloomberg wrote. The same could be observed in the EU, where Germany, France, Italy and Spain are expected to increase bond sales to more than 1.1 trillion euro next year. The European Commission is also expected to issue 150 billion euro of its bonds. Even a small reduction of quantitative easing reinvestment looks ill-advised, according to the report, while it's the first line of defence for the euro area that allows maturing German debt to be recycled into buying Italian bonds. Meanwhile, UK government bond supply is expected to be around £260 billion next year, a jump of 20% from this year. The Bank of England has been reducing at double the pace of the Fed and the ECB. There's a growing perception that central banks are at the zenith of the interest rate hiking cycle, but reducing quantitative easing bond portfolios would continue to tighten monetary conditions, Bloomberg wrote, noting that the potential global growth slump next year may come shortly before rate cuts or a pause in balance sheet reduction, or likely both. With this confusion about raising interest rates to slow spending, but at the same time the government's printing more money to keep the system afloat with new spending, sets the global economy on a collision course. With the US extending its debt ceiling until January of 2025, one wonders if this will be a financial correction or a collapse is timed with an incoming possibility of President Trump being once again booby-trapped by the establishment. But will Trump's plans for a gold-backed currency be his counterpunch, or likely is any collapse the chance for the remaining globalists in power to usher in a universal basic income as a necessary enticement to accept digital ID and central bank digital currency? If all the world's a stage, then this latest announcement out of Australia that one of its big four banks, the ANZ, has announced some branches no longer handling cash transactions. 
We've taken another step towards a cashless society. A big bank has confirmed customers in some locations can no longer withdraw money over the counter as branches continue to wind back services. It's up there with the pub with no beer, the bank with no cash. ANZ has confirmed some branches no longer handle cash at the counter. Others are directing customers to smart ATMs for cash transactions. ANZ says only 8% of its customers rely solely on branches. NAB says for its customers, it's only 3%. The number of bank branches nationally dropped 30% in major cities over five years, from more than three to around 2,300. It's a worldwide trend and there are concerns it hurts disadvantaged customers the most. Senior citizens, new migrants, people who are disabled, they do need, if you like, face-to-face -face help. There's a danger here of excluding some elements of our society when we talk about inclusion all the time. The latest figures on ATMs shows the number of machines has more than halved from almost 14,000 back in 2017 to around 6,000 in the middle of last year. According to Frank Chung, writing in news.com.au, Australia is rapidly heading towards becoming a cashless society as banks crack down on withdrawals, close ATMs and branches and ban cash altogether, with one expert predicting physical money will be completely gone by the end of this decade. I'd say we'll be functioning cashless by the end of 25. It'll just be a complete rarity, said Richard Holden, Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales Business School. But unless the government gets involved to accelerate the process, I think we'll be actually cashless by 2030. Macquarie Bank has announced that it will be phasing out cash altogether following seminal moves by Commonwealth Bank, the NAB, and now the ANZ to stop handling of cash in a few branches. But beware of politicians of the offering of convenience. Patrick Wood, author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, breaks down the all-encompassing digital open-air prison that central bank digital currency and digital ID are designed to facilitate. The entire financial system that we have today is not appropriate to support what the World Economic Forum says is going to be after the Great Reset. The new economic system that's envisioned has to have a new financial system and it has to be digitized. That's why the central banks of the world today are all coordinating to create a system, a network of digital currency. The digitalization of money requires a digital ID for all the people that would use that financial system. Digital identity means that you can be identified in such a way to attach all of your history, your activity, and your future to one single point that represents you. Digital identity means total loss of privacy, total revealing of every conceivable activity that you could have been, could be involved with, all tied to one identity so that wherever you move in the world, you can be known and that additional transaction history of your travels will be recorded. A lot of people talk about how great Bitcoin is, for instance, but in the case of Bitcoin, you have a, a blockchain technology that underpins Bitcoin and puts all of the transactions into what they call a blockchain, where there is no transparency either. It just happens to be distributed, but you know, where there's no one central place is stored, but you can still look into any, anybody's blockchain and see exactly who did what, when, where, how. The central bank are intending to create a digital currency that will use blockchain to collect with all of the pieces of information in it, but it will be flashed back to a central computer 
at the central bank and it will be stored under your digital identity. That will be able to be analyzed using artificial intelligence software where they can predict your behavior and if they don't like the behavior that's predicted, they can modify your behavior. This is the essence of scientific dictatorship in the end. Whoever controls the data controls the object of the data. In other words, where it was collected from. Wherever you might go, wherever you might show up, whatever you did on social media, tags where you where you are or who you're with or whatever. All of that information can be transmitted back to be attached to, in blockchain form, attached to your digital identity. Come on, you conspiracy theorist, you, the government, any government, all governments are here to protect us. President of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, announces the launch of the EU's central bank digital currency. The digital euro is being developed, assuring us that cash is here to stay. Then why are banks phasing out cash at record rates? The digital euro is on the move. Yesterday, the governing council of the ECB approved the opening of the preparation phase. It will be a journey and we will walk the journey together with the legislator. All European institutions will be involved to make sure that Europe is equipped with the currency of the future. Cash is here to stay. You will have all options, cash and digital cash. So what does it mean for you? For consumers, it would be free and easy to use everywhere in the euro area. All of that, of course, is subject to the legislative process. Cash or digital, the choice will be yours. Will it be ours? Or is this just one of those furfies that were delivered in order for their government and those in power to get what they really want? So if cash is really here to stay, like Lagarde has just promised, then why have a CVDC? Is it about control or convenience? Let's go back to Lagarde to see how she answers that question. The digital euro is going to have a limited amount of control. There will be control. You're right. You're completely right. Mm -hmm. We are considering whether for very small amounts, you know, anything that is around 300, 400 euros, we could have a mechanism where there is zero control. But that could be dangerous. The terrorist attacks on France uh, back uh, 10 years ago were entirely financed by those very small anonymous credit cards that you can recharge in total anonymity. Speaking at the World Economic Forum, former head of the IMF's China division, Eswar Prasad, says CBDCs will be programmable in a way that will enable governments to dictate how, when, where or what and by whom they can be spent, including the imposition of expiry dates. So much for freedom and choice. Who is this really aimed at? And why? If you think about the benefits of digital money, there are huge potential gains. It's not just about uh, digital forms of physical currency. You can have programmability, you know, um, units of central bank currency with expiry dates. You could have, as I argue in my book, a potentially better and yeah, some people might see it or a darker world where the government decides that units of central bank money can be used to purchase some things, but not other things that it deems less desirable. Very, very slippery slope. That's just a very senior but former IMF executive. We've seen the president of the European Central Bank, and now Augustin Carstens. He's the general manager of the Bank for International Settlements, the central bank of central banks. 
And he admits the CBDC will grant central bankers absolute control over how it can be used and the technology to be able to centrally enforce that. We tend to establish the equivalence with cash. Uh, and there is a huge difference there. Uh, for example, in cash, uh, we don't know, for example, who's using a $100 bill today. We don't know who is using a 1,000 peso bill today. Uh, a key difference in, with the CBDC is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that uh, expression of central bank liability. And also we will have the technology to enforce that. Those, are, those two issues are extremely important and that makes a huge difference with respect to what, she, to what cash is. It's always sold as convenience, which presumably makes it easier to part with your money. But what are the real net benefits to society? The ones that don't benefit the government and central bankers who, as it appears so far, stand to make the biggest gains which always adds up to more power for them and less freedom and privacy for us. Here is President of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, Neil Kashkari. CBDC doesn't involve any actual problems other than enabling central bankers to monitor all transactions and deduct taxes directly from people's accounts. He says, I keep asking anybody at the Fed or outside of the Fed to explain to me what the problem this is solving. I can see why China would do it. If they want to monitor every one of your transactions, you could do that with a central bank digital currency. If you want to directly tax customer accounts, you could do that with a central bank digital currency. So I get why China would be interested, but why would the American people be for that, he asks. Central bank digital currency, do you think that that is something that you all should be looking into seriously? To, to what degree should you be looking into it seriously? Just what, what are your thoughts on CBDC? I mean, as the, uh, my colleagues at the Federal Reserve have talked about, we are examining it. Uh, I'll tell you my personal bias is I'm pretty skeptical. I keep asking anybody, anybody at the Fed or outside of the Fed to explain to me what problem this is solving. A digital, I can send anybody in this room $5 with Venmo right now, <laughs> right? No, seriously. So what is it that a CBDC could do that Venmo can't do? And all I get is a bunch of hand-waving. I get a bunch, well, maybe it's better for financial inclusion. Maybe it's better for cross-border remittances. Maybe. Is there any evidence that it is? And you know, they say, well, what about China? China is doing it. Well, I can see why China would do it. If they want to monitor every one of your transactions, you could do that with the central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. If you want to impose negative interest rates, you could do that with the central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. And if you want to directly tax customer accounts, you could do that with the central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. So I get why China would be interested. Why would the American people be for that? Last word on the process to Nigel Farage, architect of Brexit, and some say a possible future conservative British prime minister to explain just how this reality will play out if it is allowed to happen, and just how bad is it really, and who it really serves, pointing to another unelected leader, Ursula von der Leyen, selling the digital ID as a component of your new digital passport to live. Well, it's about control, isn't it? I mean, this is the most glaring example we've ever seen from a prominent world leader Von der Leyen is the president of the European Commission, 450 million people living within that union. Oh, and by the way, she's unelected, she's appointed, and here she is brazenly saying, we need a digital ID card or app on our phones. Now, bear in mind, France and Germany are trying this already. 
the European Union, she wants this to be enforced by the early 2030s and, may I add, backed up by a central bank digital currency living in a cashless society. And now she wants the whole thing to go global. Can you imagine on this ID card will be not just your date of birth, your gender, your eye color, your height, your approximate weight. There will be your vaccine status, your financial status, and goodness knows what else will be on that card. Can you imagine this data falling into the hands of bad actors? And if you think about it, That's and, and I speak to somebody, I speak to somebody who's recently been debanked as a result of his political opinions, and this is happening in America too, as you well know, to lots of people. If we're not careful, we head towards a Chinese-style social credit system where unless you go along with the views of the day, you become a non-person. I cannot think of a more dangerous initiative than this. So why is the selling of convenience by globalist politicians so sneaky? Why are we never told officially that this idea is really good? And yes, we, the government, will know all of your business, dip into your accounts to take the taxes you owe us. And if we feel like it, we will penalise you if you say something that does not support what we are doing to you. Is there an alternative to this new system or will it collapse before being installed with all the changes coming? There will need to be some form of resistance from the people or somehow an unwinding if it comes into effect. But is that even possible? Well, yesterday on this show, I provided evidence that Anthony Albanese, the Australian Prime Minister's polling numbers, had slumped and asked if it might be possible that he is the next in line of a long term of one term prime ministers. It seems that the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, agrees. Today, it has been reported that Peter Dutton has declared the coalition is in a strong position to return to government at the next election telling colleagues the opposition will unveil major policy announcements that will demonstrate that the Liberal and National parties are ready to govern. Buoyed by the latest news poll, which showed Labor's primary voters tumbled to 31%, the opposition leader conceded an under-pressure government would recalibrate over the Christmas break, but insisted 2024 would be an enormous year for his party. From the moment we found ourselves in opposition, we've been determined to chart a course to return to government, not eventually, not in two terms, but in one, Dutton said, according to a party woman, a party room spokeswoman. We're now in a strong position, and that's because of the way that we've worked together, supported colleagues, and while no party could ever be expected to get everything right, we're in a much stronger position because of the strength and unity in the party room. In the final coalition party room meeting of the year, Dutton said families would be doing it tough at Christmas because prices for everything had gone up. Employment would come become less certain and mortgages would become unmanageable. Australians will be looking for leadership, he said, according to the spokeswoman. And indeed, they will. And with the procession of progressive governments being tossed out, Millet in Argentina, Wilders in the Netherlands. We've also seen we've had uh, Luxon, of course, in New Zealand. Poiliev looked poised to take over in Canada, all ahead of what could be the big Trump election. Things are certainly changing in the West and rapidly. Well, that concludes today's edition of Compass. Up next is Chris Smith. Thanks for your company. I'm Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio.